to a special edition of the Darwin Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to share my recent conversation with Les Alexander. Les is a professor of practice and business administration here at the Darwin School of Business, and his academic areas are finance, strategy, ethics, and entrepreneurship. We recently connected with Les as part of our ongoing faculty spotlight series, Office Hours. And if you're interested in venture capital, private equity, entrepreneurship, or entrepreneurship through acquisition, this episode is essential listening. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my interview with Les Alexander. Les, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, Brett, thank you. My pleasure. Appreciate the invitation. All right. So let's start uh, just by talking a little bit more about your background. Tell us more about you. Sure. So I'm originally from New Orleans, Louisiana. I came to UVA and graduated here out of the McIntyre School of Commerce. From there, went into investment banking. I did that for a couple of years before getting my MBA at North Carolina. And then from there, went back into investment banking because I enjoyed that type of work. Worked in investment banking for about 15 years. And then I had a client approach me about running their business. We had been working on a project with them and they asked me to come be president of their fire truck and emergency vehicle manufacturing business. So ran that company, 450 employees, about 350 trucks produced a year, sold globally. And that was a great experience putting a lot of my MBA skills to work. And then from there left and got into venture capital and private equity. So I got on the private investing side of things where I was deploying capital into primarily privately owned businesses to help them to grow and expand. And then as a part of my continuous journey after I got into venture capital and private equity, I got into teaching and have been teaching at the college level, undergraduate, and then graduate level for the past 10 years or so. And in addition to that, I also serve on a number of nonprofit and for-profit boards. All right. So a lot to talk about there. I'm curious, <laughs> you mentioned you originally started down this investment banking path. What what sparked your interest in investment banking uh, finance generally? So I kind of liked the deal community. I liked that investment banking was a fast-paced, active, dynamic industry where you were helping businesses facilitate either access to capital or acquiring businesses or possibly selling off parts of their businesses or even business owners selling their business at the appropriate time. And so it was fun for me to learn about how do companies go public? How do you raise capital in the public markets through equity or debt securities? What's the process for selling a business? How does that work? What's the role the investment banker plays? And so it was fascinating for me. I also enjoyed the fact that it's very project oriented. So you're working on a number of different types of projects all at the same time. So you have to multitask. A lot of interaction with the business managers, the senior leadership team of these companies, helping them figure out what they need to do in terms of raising capital, how much capital, what kind of structure, things like that. And a little bit of travel around as well, which was fun getting to go see these businesses firsthand, walk the shop floor, talk to the president or CEO or CFO of the business to learn more about a variety of companies that we were helping. One of the things you noted as you were introducing your story is this transition you made in your career um, to being a leader uh, of, a, of a company and, and being in the C-suite. That has to be like a relatively big change. I don't know. How did you think about that? Did you know much about the industry you were you were joining? 
Well, so I knew from working in that industry for about six or seven years, the dynamics around the fire truck and emergency vehicle industry had made contacts with a lot of the folks that operated businesses there. But it was the first opportunity I had to actually see if I could lead a business. And this was a fairly sizable business with 450 employees in this uh, location. But I found out that, you know, I could lean on my MBA skills, the things I learned in finance, operations, marketing, communications, leadership, all kinds of skills to figure out if I could actually help add value and grow this business. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Obviously, the fire truck industry is very interesting. Um, working with some interesting people, producing these vehicles that are are pretty neat. And I really enjoyed having the opportunity to lead a business and work with a dynamic team to kind of grow and expand what we were doing in the vehicle space. And so how do you get from there to, to private equity, venture capital, working working for a firm? Yeah, it's a great question. It wasn't like the goal I had in mind when I left business school to get into venture capital or private equity. It was sort of an evolution of my business career where I was taking my deal experience on the finance side, understanding how to raise capital and get deals done. And then my operating experience at the fire truck company, being responsible for people in a P&L and things like that. And combine those two to get into venture capital and private equity. And much of what we do, in addition to sort of finding the deals and evaluating the deals that we want to complete, is sitting on boards of directors. And it helped me to have been in the shoes of that CEO or CFO or operator of a business because I could talk from a perspective of having done to a degree what they were doing as well. So I could relate a little bit easier. I could talk at a strategic level to try to provide them with some guidance, but recognized I didn't want to get in the way. I didn't want to be doing their job or telling them how to do it. I just wanted to be a sounding board, provide guidance and resources. And so having that experience definitely helped me but also leaning back into my finance world about doing deals and how deals get done and the dynamics of doing deals and raising capital and securities and all that kind of thing fit very well into the investing aspect of venture capital and private equity. So it was a very nice blend. Most of the people, or I can't say most, many of the people in venture capital and private equity tend to fall from a finance background. So being able to bring some of that operational experience, I thought enhanced what I could do in that role. And at some point along this journey, you get interested in teaching. I, I did. Um, it was interesting the way that evolved for me. I had been guest speaking in a number of university classes, given my investment banking and venture capital, private equity background. And one of the faculty members came up to me afterwards and said, you seem to be very good at this. You're very comfortable in the classroom. Have you ever thought about teaching? And I thought about it for a minute and I said, well, I'd, I'd love to teach later in my career, but I'm actually in investing right now. It's my full-time job. And they said, no, well, you could be an adjunct and teach in the evenings. So I said, okay. So I started with teaching a class, which was great. And then I reached out to Tulane University and asked them if they had a need, which they did. So they gave me a class and I was doing well. So they asked me to teach another and another and another. 
And then eventually they came to me and said, well, you can't be an adjunct. You're teaching too many classes. So I said, okay, well, what does that mean then? They said, well, we need to make you a full-time faculty member. And I said, well, can I keep doing what I'm doing on the investing side? And they said, sure, you've managed it well so far. So I was teaching investment banking classes, venture capital and private equity classes, entrepreneurial finance classes, and a bunch of other things while I was also continuing to be an investor. So that was great for me. I did that at Tulane for about eight years and then reached out to Darden to see if they might have a need here. And that's kind of how I ended up at Darden. It's probably nice to be back in Charlottesville after your, your time in undergrad. It's fantastic to be back in Charlottesville, but Darden, Darden's a special place. I mean, the reason that I wanted to reach out and work here is the caliber of the students is excellent. Being able to interact with them in and outside of the classroom is very rewarding for me because I really enjoy the conversations we have. But then also the resources, Darden, as everyone probably knows, is case-oriented in its teaching style. And I've always enjoyed, in all the teaching that I've done, being able to teach with cases. I think it's a great way to bring a business situation into the classroom and talk about it with the students to figure out the best way to address the situation being presented. So I think that's a lot of fun. And then I always had an interest in writing cases. I actually wrote a case when I was an MBA student with a faculty member and have since written a couple of cases myself. Tulane didn't have the resources to be able to help me improve what I was doing, but Darden does. And so being able to produce cases in Darden, get some instruction and guidance there has just been fantastic. So it's been a really nice blend for me. And one of the things I was struck uh, by when we were preparing for this call is just the resources that you referenced Darden has around helping professors get better in the classroom and really think about how they're delivering you know, their, their subject material there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the nice thing about it is that there are workshops that faculty will put on for other faculty. There are um, events that we get together where we learn best practices from one another. We'll talk about whether it's student-centered in learning and some tricks and tips to be able to do that more effectively. We had a session the other day on how to use the board in the classroom effectively. We get a chance to watch other faculty members teach and see what they do well and possibly borrow some of those dynamics, but also practice in some of these sessions and get feedback from our colleagues about how we're doing and what we might want to think about when we teach either that subject, that case, or in that way in the future. And so for me, I love the learning. I love to continue to improve what I am doing to try to be a better facilitator of that discussion when we talk about cases in the classroom. You're clearly someone who's passionate about the case case method. Um, can you tell us about the case that, that you wrote uh, previously? Sure. So I've written several, but one that I really enjoy teaching is a case on Theranos, which is the blood testing company many people have heard of that Elizabeth Holmes created years ago. Um, it was a story that I heard about before it became incredibly popular in the media. And as I started to learn more about it, I, I was like, oh, no, this is something I have to bring into the classroom and talk to my students about because the subject is just fascinating. But the reason I like the case so much is that it's multi-layered. 
is that I've taught this case in a venture capital class. I've actually guest taught this class in an ethics class. You could teach this class in a leadership or governance class. There's so many elements to it that make this case very rich. That's why I enjoy teaching it. So we talk about, like in this case, the ethics of fake it till you make it, which is a common saying out in Silicon Valley of faking what you're doing until your business actually can become sustainable and successful. Talk about governance. We all talk about Elizabeth and Sonny being responsible for the failure of that business, but what role does the board play in that overall governance of that business? We talk about things like the management and leadership of the business. It was very secretive. There were siloed groups of people working within it. And we talk about the venture capital, like the investors that put money into this business. Should they have put money into this business? What did they know and not know? How were they able to do due diligence? Were there any deficiencies in the process? So I love the case because we can talk about so many things around this business, its governance, how it performed beyond just simply the fact that it was a colossal failure in the the ecosystem. It's interesting how much governance has come up in some of these recent stories of really hot firms growing a lot and then you know they fall fall apart and people say well they didn't have enough internal control they didn't have a good uh governance structure it, it maybe not the most exciting thing to talk about but very important uh for for business well it is particularly for these growing private businesses and when you talk about people that maybe didn't have previous leadership experience having run companies before they need to lean on their board for guidance and assistance and it plays a very important role. Board members should not just be there just to attend the board meetings. They need to engage. They need to be informed. They need to ask the hard questions when the business is not performing where it needs to be. Clearly, the Theranos case is a great example of the board members not really understanding, I believe, the technology, not asking the right questions to make sure that this business was doing what it was supposed to be doing, not really pushing back on Elizabeth as much as they probably should be. And I think if you look at the composition of that board, it's interesting in that there's a significant lack of diversity, number one, but two, you've got a lot of people that don't have a lot of experience in the industry. It's mostly government officials that had backgrounds there. So they couldn't push back and question a lot. So the idea about governance, I think, is a fascinating one to talk about. I love talking about it in my classroom. Well, that's a, that's a good transition to talk about some of your classes. I, I would like to talk begin by talking about your venture capital leadership course. Now, sometimes there's just courses on venture capital. You made the express choice to say, I want this course to be about venture capital leadership. Why, why, that, why that nuance? So there are other classes at Darden that get into venture capital and the basics of venture capital. But I thought the students needed to learn a little bit more about the ecosystem of who are the players in the space. Whether you're going to be a venture capitalist or an entrepreneur, it helps to understand the dynamics of that industry and who are the players there. So we talk about not only the venture capitalists, but the angel investors, the accelerators like a Y Combinator, talk about corporate venture capital. So we talk about all those things. We get into a discussion of how do you select the right investments to invest in? And then once you've invested in them, how do you add value to those portfolio companies? And so we talk about a variety of topics that are not what I would call the VC 101, what's a term sheet, what's a cap table kind of thing, 
but more higher level things. What benefit does venture capital provide to the economy? How do limited partners think about making investments in venture capital firms? Should they be allocating capital to this asset class and things like that? So it's a great place to have discussions around these higher level topics. But the other thing that it allows me to do is to bring guests into the classroom that are in these various areas within the venture capital space and interact with the students. So I'll bring in maybe a limited partner that allocates capital to this asset class. I'll bring in a venture capitalist. We'll bring in somebody from Y Combinator to talk to the students about what they do or corporate VC like a Salesforce Ventures or somebody like that. And so the conversations that we have in class are fantastic given the topics and the folks that we have join us. Can you give us an example of a case uh, that you read as a class or maybe a, a discussion that you had uh, that you think is a good illustration of, of what the class is all about? So we talk about a couple of different cases, and I keep changing them from year to year just to make sure that they stay fresh. But there's a case that we talk about where the protagonist has to choose between three different investment opportunities. And we talk about what are the attractive uh, elements of those different deals and what are the less attractive attributes of those deals. And we get into things like the management team and the market opportunity and things like that. We talk about things like uh, Andreessen Horowitz case, which is a little bit different in terms of venture capital because they've got a different model where not only do they provide the capital, but they also provide a lot of resources to the companies that they've invested in and they support. Does that help these companies to grow? Does that help this company do better than a traditional VC that may not provide all of these resources to them? We talk about the Theranos case. We touched on a variety of other businesses that have failed. Why have they failed? What has happened? Is it okay for venture capitalists to make investments that fail? So a bunch of different cases that we bring into class to talk about the various topics. Yeah, and for our, our listeners here, this is an example. Of, this is an elective that students uh, take here. It's a available on our full-time MBA program. Les, I, I think you've also expanded this elective to our executive MBA program. Is that right? I did. Um, I get a chance to teach not only our residential students here in Charlottesville, but also in the executive MBA format up there in D.C. as well, where we meet two weekends during the quarter in person on generally a Saturday or a Sunday, spend either the full morning or the full afternoon in the class. But then we also have several Zoom sessions throughout the rest of the quarter where we can talk about these topics as well. And I enjoy working with both groups. So we're talking a lot about venture capital, private equity, and many of our attendees uh, today may know exactly what that means. But for people who are just beginning to learn about what this is, I think sometimes business school can be a little intimidating because you hear about consulting and all this stuff, and it doesn't always tell you what exactly it is. So how would you describe venture capital to someone who uh, doesn't know as much about it? So the, the nice thing about um, what I'm teaching here, in addition to my electives, is I also have this VC learning series that we do in the fall for first year students, because the first year students have core where they have required classes they have to take. And so, Brett, to your point, I try to teach them some of these things in the VC learning series. So if you're not familiar with it as a Darden student, you can come in at the beginning of the first quarter and we'll start talking about things 
around venture. And we talk about the difference between investing in private companies versus investing in public companies. What are those dynamics? But venture capital is pretty much investing in very attractive growth opportunities in privately owned businesses in a variety of different industries. And what we're trying to do is provide them with the capital and the guidance to rapidly grow this business to where after roughly a five to seven year hold period for that investment, we can exit it at an attractive return and generate profits and return gains to our investors. And so we talk about in that VC learning series about everything from how do you source or find a company to invest in? What makes it attractive? How do you analyze or perform due diligence, which is basically like doing your homework on that company? How do you evaluate it? What are you looking for that makes a company more or less attractive to a venture capitalist? And it generally is around market size and the ability to grow. And can the entrepreneur or founder execute on their strategy? And will people pay for this product or service? A lot of things like that. And then we get into a discussion around, okay, if we like this business and we want to allocate capital here, how do we design our investment to generate the return we're looking for, but protect our investment in the downside if it doesn't perform as well as we had hoped? And so we talk about term sheets and deal structuring and selecting securities and things like that. And then mindful of the process, we also realize that we have to not only add value as we're working with this portfolio company, but position it for an exit at some point in the future because venture capitalists don't invest and hold on to these companies forever. There's a point at which they have to exit, have a liquidity event to achieve a return so they can return the invested capital and hopefully profits back to their investors so that those investors give them more money to raise the next fund. And they do it again, and they do it again, and do it again. And so that's kind of what venture capital is all about. And we spend time talking about that in that venture capital learning series. Yeah, I appreciate you walking through that. Um, I have to believe that's really helpful to students just in terms of orienting towards this industry. I mean, you hear a lot. I mean, I've been here at Darden seven, eight years now. Uh, when I first got here compared to now, I hear a lot more interest from prospective students in v- VC, P. It feels like there's a lot more conversation just about this out in the world, too. Why Why do you think that might be? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that there's an increased focus on it at business schools and students coming in wanting to be able to get into the space. Historically, there have been some schools that do it very well because they're in the places that historically have had a lot of venture capital. And while Darden produces students that are very well skilled to enter into the space, we haven't had a natural path to put a lot of students into the private capital markets. We do, we are increasing that and that's great. But I think what we're trying to do through the Mayo Center and the Batten Institute is increase the profile of Darden in venture capital, in private equity. We're trying to enhance the teaching that we provide to the students. So the courses in the electives that you can choose from, we're trying to bring more speakers to Darden where students can hear from and interact with these people. We had a VC in yesterday 
where they got a chance to present. Actually, we did a fireside chat. And then afterward, we had a reception where students could ask questions directly of that venture capitalist about how they do what they do. How's the market? How do I get a job in the space? And so I think what we're trying to do at Darden is increase the access, increase the network, and create greater opportunities for students to pursue a career in this industry if they choose to do so. So uh, venture capital and private equity are, it seems like, almost linked to each other the way people express it's VC and PE, uh, but they're different. How would you explain uh, private equity uh, to, to someone who's still learning about this industry? Yeah, so you're right. They both fall in this private capital marketplace, but they're very, very different. Venture capital, as we talked about, is basically allocating capital to startup and very early stage companies that we're willing to accept a lot of risk in hopes that they significantly grow and create these very high returns. Private equity is a little bit different. We typically think about buyout in private equity, and that's where the firm will buy a controlling interest in mostly a private business to help them scale and grow and exit at a higher value. And so when you talk about private equity, we're trying again to invest in a company that's successful with an opportunity to grow, but it doesn't have to grow as fast. It's generally much more mature. So it's an established business that has revenue and profitability. And what we're doing is that we're buying control of it to be able to enhance the operations, the marketing, the products, the intellectual property, whatever it is that we're focused on to try to increase that value and ultimately exit it again in about a five-year period of time, typically. So the attributes that you would bring to those are a little bit different in venture capital. If you're looking for a job there, they want to know what industries do you find terribly exciting? What companies, early stage companies have you been talking to and are you very interested in and think would be attractive growth candidates. On the private equity side, it tends to be more, do you understand how companies are purchased? Do you understand how leverage or debt is utilized in a capital structure? Do you kind of understand how to do add-on acquisitions to a platform to enhance the value and grow the combined business to the point of sale? So it's a little bit of a different model, even though they're both alternative asset classes. All right. And another elective uh, you have here uh, also relates to entrepreneurship uh, through acquisition. So it's an elective focused on entrepreneurship through acquisition, ETA, as it's known. Um, tell us more about this course. Yeah. So this is another growing area for students, particularly MBA students. Entrepreneurship for, through acquisition, if you're not familiar with it, is where you as an individual or with a partner would pursue the purchase of a small private business where you can run it as the CEO or president of that organization. You can do it in a couple of different ways. You could raise what they call a search fund where you have people back you for a two-year period of time covering your salary while you search to find a successful private business that you can purchase. And when we talk about these small businesses, generally think about something with an EBITDA of a million to five million. Privately owned business, oftentimes uh, founder owned, where you would come in and buy the business from that founder. 
and then figure out a way to enhance and grow that while you lead that business going forward. And this is a great area for MBA students because we think that you will have the skills needed to lead a business. Darden does a very good job providing that leadership guidance and training while you're here, but also introduction to the other areas that you're going to need access to while you manage a business like this. The managing the talent, the human talent that you have there, the marketing, understanding finance, all of these areas come into play in managing a small business because you wear many hats. So ETA is all about buying a small business to lead and grow. So how do you structure a course uh, about entrepreneurship through acquisition? How do you, how do you design something like that? So what I try to do with the course that I teach is to give them a broad overview and introduction to ETA. So we start with the different types of models that are out there in ETA, whether it's traditional, self-funded, accelerator, or other. And then we build into the process of how do you search for a business? What characteristics make for an attractive business if you're looking to buy it? We talk about how to do due diligence. We talk about structuring. We talk about access to debt financing. We talk about other ways that you can put together your offer in a letter of intent. And so we learn everything about the process from start of searching all the way to purchasing your business. And then there's another class that's taught here at Darden that picks it up after you've purchased it and talks about how do you lead it? How do you grow it? And how do you ultimately position it for exit? And then we have other classes that talk about uh, the acquisition of closely held businesses or mergers and acquisitions. And so there are a couple of avenues to explore this sort of buying small businesses in the M&A world. And this is a class that you have offered to the full-time MBA students down in Charlottesville, but also the executive MBA students up in Roslyn as well, right? It is exactly. We found that students in both programs are very interested in learning about the space, but possibly pursuing it as a career opportunity afterward. And I've been talking to a number of our current students that are actually searching right now. I have one that I met with on Friday that told me that the letter of intent that she submitted was actually signed. So she's now in the process of doing confirmatory due diligence and trying to move toward a closing. But I'm interacting with both the EMBAs and the residential students. But the other thing that I've noticed is a lot of alumni from Darden have been contacting me about getting into this after they've been in consulting for three or four years or that they have been um, in investment banking and they think that this is a career opportunity that they want to explore. And so I actually get to interact and to a degree provide guidance to some of our alumni as well. Why do you think there's been this sort of emergence of interest in entrepreneurship through acquisition? Again, I, when I first came here, maybe I heard a little bit about search funds, that kind of thing. But now yep. I feel like current students, alumni, you hear a lot more about ETA. Yeah, they do. I mean, traditionally, ETA had been a Stanford and a Harvard sort of thing. They had programs that had been established for a while. Many of their graduates went into it. And since other schools have started to figure out this space, and so we do a conference every year in partnership with North Carolina, Duke, and Georgetown, they're starting to expand their awareness of the space. 
I attended a conference in Chicago with Booth, Kell- Booth and Kellogg, where they've started to have more students interested in. I think the awareness has just been growing across the MBA community. And I think Darden's realized that many of our students are interested in pursuing a career in this, whether it's right after graduation or several years after graduation. And they would like to better understand the space. They'd like to have some introductions to financing sources or deal sources, whether it's doing a quality of earnings or legal or any sort of uh, operational due diligence they need to do. And so what we're just trying to do is respond to the needs of our students and educate them so that if this is a career opportunity they want to pursue, they're well equipped to be able to do so. And then the other thought's going to be, how do we increase awareness for alumni that are interested? So we've had webinars with some of our Darden graduates that are in the space to let folks know more about this opportunity. I think it's just going to continue to grow. It's a little bit of word of mouth, but I think as this industry expands, I think more and more students may find it as an interesting career path. Yeah, it's interesting uh, to hear you talk about the design of your course. One of the things you talk about is identifying a possible business. I mean, it's a big world out there. How do you how do you narrow in on something that you think might be an attractive opportunity for you? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a question students ask fairly often is, well, how do I even get started? Right. How do I find deals? And there are two paths that you can think about. One would be through what's called a brokered search. So that's where you have a business broker or a small investment banking boutique shop that may represent the seller of their business in the process of finding a buyer to purchase it. And so they will send out little marketing, they call them teasers. They're like one, two or three page summaries on an anonymous anonymous basis on this business where you can see what industry are they in? What are the, broadly speaking, their revenue and EBITDA numbers look like? What are the highlights of the business of what they think they do well? And you can evaluate whether that would be an interesting business to pursue or not. The other way to go about doing it is what's called a proprietary search, where you identify certain industries that you want to focus on and you actually contact the business owners of these small businesses directly. And you try to initiate a conversation with them. The challenge there is that many of these private business owners are not interested in selling, oftentimes not interested in engaging in a conversation. And so the hit rate on that is much, much lower. But if you can find one that's willing to engage in a conversation and willing to sell their business to you, you can generally negotiate more favorable terms, won't be competitive. So you're not competing against many other buyers trying to buy the same company. So that's a great way to do it. The other thing that's interesting about this space is we're trying to buy companies that are successful and profitable and growing. And oftentimes the question is, well, why would somebody want to sell a business that's successful and profitable and growing? Well, the answer is a lot of these business owners may not have any succession plan. They may not have children to leave it to. They may not know how to be able to monetize this business that they've built up. And so this provides them with an avenue to actually realize the wealth that they've created in this business. So that's one. Other times, people may um, have an illness that's driving them to not be able to manage it anymore. 
Sometimes it could be that the owner realizes they've taken it as far as they are capable of growing the business and it's time to turn it over to somebody else to run it. And so sometimes those types of people will even retain some equity ownership or a seller note in the business because they believe it's going to continue to grow. They just don't have the training or possibly the risk tolerance to take on more capital to pursue that next level of growth. So what we're generally looking for in businesses like this are businesses that have been growing because we don't want a declining business. We're looking for businesses that are profitable. So again, back to that one to $5 million of EBITDA because it creates more stability. And then we're looking for businesses where, you know, there are either recurring or reoccurring revenue. So it's a basic business that's kind of got some sustainability to it and then other attractive attributes in the industry. And there are a number of other things we could talk about if you want to come take my class and we can talk at greater length about all of that. Well, the other thing, we talked about the venture capital learning series that you host for first year students to kind of help them get up to speed. And, and I will note for people who are here looking at our executive MBA and part-time MBA programs, uh, these sessions have also been open uh, to those students as well. I know you all had a couple of sessions up here in Roslyn, I believe, as part of that series. We did. Um, we tried to get all of the programs engaged in this learning series. We provide the ability for the executive MBAs and part-time MBAs, if they can't come down and join us in Charlottesville, to join us by Zoom. But also, we try to bring the program up there so we can interact with them as well, so that they can be part of that learning the other thing we did was on Friday night, there's a thing the executive MBA program does, which is Friday Night Live, where they'll get together after classes on Friday in the evening. We did a session on Friday talking about career opportunities in VCPE and ETA. We had about 75 executive MBAs and part-time MBA students in attendance, and we just sort of presented to them what the you know, what's going on in the VC market? How do you find a job in the VC market? Same thing with PE. And then we talked a little bit about what ETA is because we haven't had a chance to have the course yet. So the students are aware of it and then how to think about pursuing a career there. And then concluded with what are the resources Darden can provide to our students in terms of courses, things we can do outside the classroom, seminars, conferences, anything that will enhance their learning while they're at school. Well, that sort of segues into my next question, which is about a conference that you're involved with planning. Uh, the UVA Venture Capital Conference is going to take place up in Roslyn, uh, coming in April, I believe. That's correct. Um, this will be, to my knowledge, our inaugural UVA Venture Capital Conference. And the idea was we wanted to be able to have students have an opportunity to interact with people in the space. To do that, we thought it would be most effective if we created it as a practitioner-focused conference. So what that means is we're designing it so that venture capitalists, limited partners, and entrepreneurs will want to attend this conference to learn from one another hear about what's going on in the space and learn about certain activities in certain industries. And so we've designed it where the opening session, we're going to have Bobby Franklin, who's the president of the National Venture Capital Association, talk to us about current market conditions in venture capital and public policy affecting the VC industry. Then we'll do some breakout sessions by industry. So we're going to do 
cybersecurity, defense technology, consumer product, uh, consumer packaged goods, and healthcare sessions, where we'll have venture capitalists as well as entrepreneurs talk about what's currently going on in those spaces. We'll have a keynote luncheon speaker, and then we're going to have two sessions late in the afternoon, one led by venture capitalists talking to entrepreneurs about how do you pitch successfully to a venture capitalist. And then we're going to have another session of limited partners talking about current topics in the VC space and how they're thinking of allocating capital to venture capital funds, both existing and new. And then we'll wrap it up with a set with a reception where everyone can network together and talk and connect. And so the idea is one, we're trying to provide an avenue for students to be able to connect with practitioners in the space, to be able to get jobs, but also just learn about what's going on so they can be articulate in their interviews and conversations with the VCs they're talking to. But we're also trying to elevate the profile of Darden within venture capital and to show that we are an education partner to the industry. So they're aware that not only do we provide great leadership education, but we produce great students that are well um, established to be successful in venture capital. And so we're trying to elevate that. We're partnering with a number of people or organizations in this conference. So the National Venture Capital Association, I mentioned, they're going to be a partner on it. The Small Business Investor Alliance, the SBIA, is going to be a partner. We've reached out to the ILPA, which is the Institutional Limited Partners Association, and others to try to start working on this conference, but also figure out are there other educational opportunities that we can provide to them and their membership to enhance Darden's visibility and reputation in the space. One of the things I know you mentioned a, a couple of times as we were in our planning call for this conversation is that you really wanted this conference to focus on actual practitioners. That was something that to have this practitioner focused conference that was that was a priority for you. I did, because if you get those in the industry that are actually doing the work there, students will definitely come. And I also wanted because from my conversations with people when I was talking about the initial idea of doing this, I kept hearing that uh, Washington, D.C. and sort of the mid-Atlantic area didn't have as many opportunities for VCs and LPs and entrepreneurs to get together and to talk about topics that they were dealing with. And so it seemed to be a nice vehicle to allow people to get together and do that. So it's designed to give our students access, but honestly, people in the industry were asking for this too. And so it allows us to really provide that avenue for them to network and share ideas and possibly deals together. And if it's successful, we'll keep doing this year after year after year and improve the ecosystem and allow these folks to, you know, network with one another and build a tighter community. Well, let's, um, as we got about 15 minutes or so here left in our conversation, I want to ask you just some questions uh, about the VCPE industry, um, some things maybe that, that you've noticed or are on, on your mind as you think about current trends. Um, so one, one question I have for you is, what's the biggest misconception people have uh, about uh, venture capital and private equity? Well, so broadly speaking, what you hear about in the media all the time are these exceptionally large funds. So if you think about it on the PE side, you can think about KKR, Carlisle, and others. 
when you think about the VC side, it's Sequoia and Andreessen and Kleiner Perkins and folks like that. And that's typically what you hear all the time. But the vast majority of this industry is in the smaller, what I'll call middle market and lower middle market players of the space. And so you don't get to hear about the dynamics going on there as much because one, media doesn't have access to them as often. And two, they're not doing the high profile, high visible deals all the time that you see again in the media. So that's one thing, but you kind of need to break the VC and PE worlds apart a little bit to talk about some other myths that go on. We talked about earlier, and I've talked with a number of people about this myth that private equity goes in, buys companies, dismantles them, sells off the assets, fires everybody, and just looks to extract all the value that they can. And private equity, in my experience, particularly in the middle market, could not be vastly different than what I just explained to you. Private equity in the world that I work in, they're focused on how do I grow businesses? How do I enhance the companies that I've invested in? How do I train the management team that's running this business to be able to be successful and grow the company beyond what it can do today? And so, Everything that private equity is focused on is around growth and enhancement. And if you look at the statistics, the job growth of private equity-owned companies versus non-private equity-owned companies is significant. It's on a factor of like four or five or more times based on the data I've seen. So private equity firms do grow jobs. Venture capital firms do grow jobs. Now, we think about all the failures and all, how could they have invested in Theranos and FTX and all this other kind of stuff. But truth be told, a lot of these companies got money for venture capital that they couldn't have gotten from anywhere else. Venture capital funds innovation, product development, and helps create wealth for not only the entrepreneur that came up with this business, but if you think about the pension, the public pensions that invest in this space, these are teachers and firefighters and police officers and others. They're benefiting from the growth of this industry as well. So we get so hyper-focused on the failures or these high-profile businesses like Tesla and Elon Musk and all this kind of stuff. But what we're missing is these are segments of the private capital markets that provide this essential growth capital for these businesses that really drive innovation and product enhancement. Are there any trends uh, that have caught your attention in, in VC, PE, entrepreneurship through acquisition that, that you're thinking about a lot these days? Yeah, there are a couple of interesting trends. On the VC side, unfortunately, we're in the downturn of a cycle. And all of these industries, PE, VC, et cetera, will go through cycles. So you need to be mindful of it. Much like interest rates have risen and they're infecting the private equity community with regard to the cost of capital. On the venture capital side, we've entered into a market that's a lot more conservative and less willing to accept risk. So it's a challenging time for venture capitalists to deploy capital and also raise new funds because the performance just hasn't been there. So VCs are being much more selective now in their portfolio about which portfolio companies they're going to provide more capital to and which ones they might actually allow to fail because they're not going to be ultimately successful. So that's a trend that's going on right now. 
Um, some other things that we're seeing in the private equity world, we're seeing an increase in what they call these continuation funds. Private equity realized that the five to seven year hold period forced them to sell good companies that they had in the portfolio. They actually are starting to create these vehicles that have a much longer time horizon to them. So private equity can hold on to them longer, do longer term planning and expansion and create more value. So that's an interesting dynamic that's going on over there in the private equity world. On the, the venture capital side, um, we had a conversation yesterday with a VC about AI. That's an area that VCs are still trying to wrap their head around where in that ecosystem to play, where to place their bets, because there's so many different aspects of that industry segment. Everybody knows that it's going to be transformational, much like the emergence of the internet was. But I think people are still trying to figure out where they're going to have successful companies, where they can efficiently deploy capital, and where they might want to be careful to not deploy capital because it's either going to require a lot more capital than they can follow on with, or it's going to take a lot longer to prove to be successful. So a, a bunch of interesting dynamics around these industries. The things that I like about it is that they're never stagnant or constant. Everything in all of these industries continues to adapt and evolve and new challenges will come up, but new opportunities do as well. And so staying on top of what's going on in the industry and those dynamics to try to create returns for your investors makes it an interesting industry to participate in. So you mentioned we're at the kind of end of a cycle and how that's affecting uh, VC firms and how they look at different investments. How, do, how does that change, do you think? How do you how do we go back into sort of an upward swing where they are making more investments and they feel comfortable making more investments? Well, the big limitation right now on venture capital is their ability to exit portfolio companies. A lot of times the venture capitalists like to exit through a public offering because the valuation is significantly higher typically than if they simply sell the business. But right now, the IPO market window, as we call it, is closed for new companies. They're not accepting of newly publicly traded companies as an investor. And so when you don't have an investor appetite to do that, your portfolio companies get trapped in your portfolio and you hold them longer until that window opens back up again. It will happen. It always does. It just takes time. But that's one thing that's limiting the um, venture capitalist ability to exit some of their successful businesses. Other things that are, are limiting are also the M&A market is a little bit more limited given the higher interest rates and cost of capital there. And then when you can't exit and give the returns back to your investors, they don't have the money to give you into your next fund. And so it limits the fundraising. The other thing that you'll notice if you look at any of the data from PitchBook or others is that while new funds may be raised, fewer funds are being raised, which means that the larger funds are able to raise more capital again. So if Sequoia wants to go raise another fund, it's probably a lot easier for them to go raise a fund than it might be a smaller DC-based fund. So again, it's a little bit of the have and have nots when the market tends to get a little bit conservative. The other thing I forgot to mention when we were talking about dynamics in the VC industry that is actually a positive 
is the expansion of markets throughout the United States where more and more venture capital is moving to. Historically, it's been very much a Silicon Valley and Boston or New York story. So it's the tale of the two coasts. What we're starting to see is, and I don't know if this is a result of COVID and people realizing they could work virtually wherever they wanted to be, or whether it's just simply markets are expanding in other areas, but you're seeing many more pockets of venture capital pop up throughout the country. So you're seeing activity in Denver and Austin and Miami and Seattle and Washington, D.C., where there's more and more GP activity raising new funds in venture capital and deploying capital into companies in those regions. That's going to be tremendously beneficial to the entrepreneurs that are not in San Francisco and Boston and New York, that happen to be in Fairfax, Virginia, or Charlottesville, or Boulder, Colorado, or Fort Lauderdale. Outside of those main areas, they're accessing capital and they don't have to move. So I think this is a very large positive for the industry. I'm curious to see how large some of these markets can become. Well, Les, I'm sure we have some prospective students on this call who are potentially interested in careers uh, in VC or PE, uh, maybe entrepreneurship through acquisition. Any any piece of advice or words of advice you would share uh, with them as they think about this career path? I, yeah, I would. Um, two words that come to mind are persistence and patience. Um Unlike the investment banking and consulting pathways to getting a job as an MBA student, which are well-worn and active recruitment, on the VC and PE side, it's a little bit of you're going to have to do much of it on your own. You're going to have to find those firms and connect with those firms to try to get them to hire you. It's weird, but private equity and venture capital do not hire on a regular basis where they hire teams of people every year. They'll hire when either they raise a new fund or when they have someone leave. And so that's the pacing of it. So you have to be top of mind and engaged with them when that timing occurs. They don't hire a bunch of people right when May rolls around and everybody's graduating. So you're going to have to make those contacts you're going to have to be persistent in staying in front of them. And that's not to the point of being obnoxious, but it's the point of sending emails or sending them maybe an article that you found or maybe mention this interesting company in the space that you came across that may they may not be aware of. Something to stay in front of them and to demonstrate your interest. The other thing you're going to need to do is you're going to need to be conversant in the terminology around the industry. So if it's venture capital, you need to understand the types of securities they invest in, the terms that are used when they're negotiating term sheets, how these investments work, how to source deals, all this kind of stuff so that you can have an informed conversation when you get in front of a partner at a VC firm, that you sound like you know what you're talking about. And they're going to ask you questions like, Oh, what companies do you find interesting these days? What industry segments have you been tracking? What is your investment thesis? What would you deploy capital into? And so you need to give this some thought so that you can have an intelligent conversation about, oh, I saw this company the other day. They're in the medical device space. Here's what they do. And here's why I think they're going to be really successful. And so you're going to need to have that story. You're going to need to know the firm very well. So do your homework on their website, on PitchBook, 
whatever resource to find out what do they invest in? What size investments do they do? What stage of investments do they invest in? What geography do they invest in? All of these things are really important. And there's so many differences that you can't just walk in and expect to say, oh, it's a VC interview. I know everything about VC. You need to do your homework about that particular company, their portfolio companies, their team, and what drives their investment strategy. All right, last last question here. Thank you so much for answering all, all of these questions. I've, I've learned a ton today. I'm sure our attendees have as well. Um, what are three books uh, you might recommend for someone who's been sparked by this conversation, wants to learn more about PVC, this alternative investment world? So, so let me give you, uh, there are three venture books that come to mind, and then I'll also give you an ETA book. So if you're interested in some of the tactical things, uh, Venture Deals is a really good book. Mendelssohn, I believe, is the author. But uh, Venture Deals gives you insight into a lot of the deal terms and how deals are structured. So you'll understand that whether you're a venture capitalist or an entrepreneur, it helps to understand a lot of that. If you're interested in understanding about kind of the space, the history of Silicon Valley, the firms that operate in this ecosystem on the larger end, I'd say uh, Sebastian Malaby's book on the power law is really good. We actually had Sebastian here this past spring, and I got to interview him uh, in a session that we did. Great book. And then The Code that's written by, I believe it's Margaret O'Mara, uh, another good book on Silicon Valley. And then if you're interested in the ETA space, the book that I always recommend is from the, the Harvard Business Review. It's the guide to buying a small business. It walks you through the steps in trying to find and evaluate and purchase a small business in the ETA space. All right. Well, Les, thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a pleasure. Great, Brett. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. And that was my interview with Les Alexander, professor of practice here at the Darden School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can reach at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Till next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.